Hi, you're listening to the Spiritual Directions Podcast with your host, Mark Thomas Shaw. So our guest today on the Spiritual Directions Podcast is Mr. John Brand, and John has been active in, in men's ministry here in the in the Point Loma community for a long time. Uh, he's a family man and uh, a recently started the slow track at a local seminary as well, um, revisiting questions of spirituality that he's been immersed in for a long time. Um, he has a very interesting story of faith and um, I wanted to invite him on the show to explore that journey a little bit and uh, share his process over time with our listeners. So, uh, John, thank you for being here and good morning. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering actually if you could start off with just a bit of background, your, your upbringing, the context out of which your uh, spiritual orientation took shape. Yeah, so again, good morning, Mark. Um, I actually love talking about uh, context and specific context is, uh, in terms of how I grew up and, and what that looked like. And, and just give a little further context to the audience. I'm, I'm 59 years old, um, been married for nearly 23 years. I've got three children, two attending private Christian universities here on the West Coast. And I've got a, uh, a son still in um, high school. So give a little context to that background. Um, so I had a, you know, again, it, when you're growing up as a youth, sometimes you don't realize how fortunate you are. I was uh, blessed and underlined and capitalized and bold that word um, to have two incredibly loving parents. Uh, my dad had been a, uh, or was at the time, a career naval officer, pilot, had fought in three wars, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. Uh, my mother... Um, was a stay-at-home mom, um, blessed us in, in so many ways. And again, you know, but, but it was a patriarchal home. Right. You know, my dad, being a, a naval officer, really dominated our, our life in, in many ways in terms of where we were moving to and, and just you know, who they entertained with and things of that sort. And so um, in that kind of context... Um, uh, that kind of background, you know, my, my mother, who, again, fabulous person as well, it wasn't until later in my life I realized um, the role that she was playing, if you will. But, mm-hmm. um, but going back to my youth, it was, um, I had two older brothers. I was the youngest of three boys, um, Christian family. Um, in hindsight, in terms of my faith, I'd, I'd say I'd, I fit the mold of a cultural Christian, which was a word I didn't learn until years later. Uh, attended church, um, lots of chaplains in my in my life. Growing up, going to different Navy uh, Navy base churches. Um, my dad retired when I was thirteen, and then we started going to a Presbyterian church here in Southern California. Regular basis, but uh, very candidly, um, at that point in time, it really wasn't, uh, it was just something I did. Um, I don't want to speak for my parents or my brothers, but something I just did. Um, Obviously, celebrated Christmas and Easter and all that kind of Uh stuff. Um, 
but again, it didn't resonate to the degree obviously it did later in my life. And so um, I what, didn't participate in any kind of youth program, even though those things were available. Um, so my my kind of my epiphany moment didn't come until kind of after I was out of out of college, if you will. So I am interested in in your experience of growing up in a patriarchal home and the effect that had on your kind of spiritual trajectory. But but really, you know, that can introduce tension into the family. And uh, I guess I'm wondering how you responded to that that rigidity, that structure. Um, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a great question. So again, to give it a little bit more flavor for some of the people in the audience who may not have grown up in a military family or who are dead. So you know, it, our family would uh, is, for things as simple as answering the phone. You wouldn't just answer the phone and say hello. You'd answer the phone and say Captain Brand's residence. Uh, when you'd go on a Navy base or a ship, you know, people were saluting my dad, or certain whistles were going off to alert people my dad was present. Um, when my dad would fly in uh, after being deployed, uh, we were always in kind of the front row and being, it was very conscious in our family, uh, appearance and protocol, young sailors approaching me and commenting, talking to me about my father, things of that sort, which is probably a little bit unusual for uh, many, many children. And I think my my brothers and I all process it a little bit differently. Um, my older brother um, kind of grew up in, I'll call that true 60s experience. You know, we were living in um, the suburbs of D.C. My dad was stationed at the Pentagon. And for those people who um, are similar age bracket or older, that was a very, you know, the 60s and Vietnam War in particular, a very turbulent time. And, and um as brothers, we all process it differently. I was the youngest, um, and uh, you know, we we each kind of went different directions with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, did that contribute to the decisions that you did make once you were out of the home and you did have that, you know, a- additional independence? Oh, yeah, it definitely, it definitely did, Mark. Um, for instance, I won't go into it in too much detail, unless you like me to. So my older brother, um, who initially started out kind of very conservative as he was going through high school, um, when he hit college, kind of veered a different direction, a little more, um, I'll call it anti-establishment, um, if you will. And that was truly troubling to my parents, who had grown up to through the Depression, hadn't had the opportunities my brothers and I had been offered. And here was their oldest son who was kind of choosing to, uh, to, to essentially drop out of college. And to watch that, again, being the youngest son, I was six years younger than my brother, uh, my oldest brother, uh, to watch that and see the kind of pain it was causing to my parents, it certainly... Um, it certainly, certainly, in hindsight, probably even at the time, I knew it was forming me. So um, I certainly knew at that point in time I was not going to follow that course of my brother, if you will. In some way, shape, or form, did it make me a little less wild, a little more conforming, perhaps? Not to judge him or my parents one way or the other, but it definitely had, it certainly had an impact. Without a doubt, it, it had impact on where I went to school, at the very least. And, and uh, I think I may have shared with you at one point, I was looking at two different schools to attend architecture school. And 
One school was University of California, Berkeley, which in the early 70s was truly on, uh, it was like the epicenter of uh, um, that kind of counterculture, hippie kind of thing, at least in my mind, or Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which was, happened to be Ronald Reagan's favorite school in this ag and very uh, conservative town and conservative school. And so when I quickly looked at Berkeley, I, it was dismissed very quickly mm-hmm. and uh, ended up going to Cal Poly, so, which was a good experience for me personally, but who knows if I'd gone to Berkeley where, where that would have taken me. But it definitely, you know, so those kind of decisions, and I'm sure that um, in other decisions, perhaps, I, it may have been affecting me as well, whether, you know, um, whether, hey, a group of friends were going to go do something that may appear to be a little wild. Perhaps it's something I probably shied away from. But it did give me a lot of independence. I mean, that was the one of the, one of the mutual things amongst all my brothers. Um, always had a, a love of uh, travel, adventure, things of that sort. And I think a lot of that was uh, embedded just as a result of being a, a Navy kid and moving every year, every two years. So you've got this adventurous spirit uh, running through the family, and you've been in kind of a rigid patriarchal household, then on to a somewhat conservative college experience. Now, did that contribute to a sense of, of trying to spread your wings coming out of that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so about a year after I'd graduated from college, so I'm, I'm saying about 23-ish, if you will, um, I sold my Pinto station wagon and my waterbed and, you know, kind of hit the, hit the trail, if you will, and, and ended up spending about, um, about nine months in Africa. And uh, I went there just kind of with a, what's called a sense of adventure. And, and my parents were, I would say, somewhat supportive. Um, obviously not traveling in Africa or other parts of the world is today is much different than it was back in the late 70s, early 80s in terms of just internet access and communication. Um, but there was also probably a simplicity to it and that was a little more, uh, a little safer perhaps, you know, than uh, when there's, there's so much publicity now out in the world about information. Sometimes it's good not to know what you don't know. And so... Uh, I started out uh, in Morocco and made myself my way down the west coast of Africa, and uh, and that was kind of when I had my epiphany moment uh, and kind of met Jesus on the road. So it's exciting. Now I am interested in that shift from graduating at Cal Poly and then landing in Morocco. Uh, was there some sort of uh, book or inciting incident, some kind of trigger? that sent you on your path? Yeah, it's funny you mention that. So, again, it's interesting. Um, I had read a book uh, in my, I'll say, fourth, fifth grade kind of time frame about a gentleman named Albert Schweitzer, who um, some of your audience may know, um, humanitarian, physician. Albert Schweitzer was one of the really the true giants of the uh, of the 20th century. For those of you who don't know about him, he had uh, he was a, a essentially a physician from kind of the border of France and Germany, and he had headed down to Equatorial Africa to open up a hospital and begin working with um, Africans and 
for some reason, that resonated with me. And later in life, I found out he was a theologian and a world-class organist and really quite a, quite a renaissance man at the extreme. And so uh, in my uh, – somewhere that planted a seed and pl- probably plus uh, getting all those National Geographic magazines over my youth intrigued me about Africa. So that's where I wanted to go as opposed to Europe or Asia or someplace else. So again, when I went ahead, when I left for Africa, again I wasn't attending, I wasn't attending any church whatsoever. Um, Three friends I knew were, were doing so, but I certainly wasn't doing it. Um, occasionally, my mom would urge me to go attend this church or that, but uh, it wasn't dismissive. It just didn't, um, again, didn't resonate at the time, and. And so I began this journey and, again, started out in Morocco, making my way down the West Coast. And uh, long story short, I ended up in Ivory Coast and had arrived, um, again, traveling by myself. And, and there's certainly lots of benefits and, uh, to doing that, lots, lots of freedoms. As the flip side is you don't get to share a lot with people, and sometimes you do get lonely on the road. But I ended up in... Um, in Ivory Coast, and that was the first place I had any issue um, entering the country. And I was placed at the airport under house arrest. and And I don't want any of your any of your uh, listeners to think I was tortured or, or jailed or beaten. It wasn't anything like that. But for a twenty you know, three year old uh, Southern California kid, um, my brother, who my brothers would say was spoiled, is add, add that to the mix. Um, um, it was, uh, and who had actually, after having traveled for about, by that time I'd been already been on the road for about three months, had already gotten kind of this kind of, not, I don't want to say cockiness, maybe more a confidence of traveling. Uh, whatever I had got shattered pretty quickly. Um, and so I was uh, detained at the airport. My bags were taken. I was uh, told, it took, it took a while to find an interpreter, but it was, it was a French, uh, former French colony, so they speak French there, and I didn't speak very much French. Uh, I was told I'd be getting on the first plane the next day, and I didn't, I didn't know where that was going to take me, but, uh, so that was also um, troubling. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got to, um, I slept in the airport, um, basically, or tried to sleep in the airport, um, and the next day I was put on the first plane out. And then from that point, uh, so I got on a plane um, that was going to go to Ghana and Nigeria and end up in Cameroon. And so those are all places I'd planned on going anyway. So it worked out somewhat fortuitously, but, uh, but I knew I was going to get off. I was, I was pretty shaken, Mark. And so I knew I wasn't going to get off at either of those spots. I was just going to get off at the end at, at Can- in Cameroon. And so the plane lands in Ghana and uh, – it's immediately surrounded by the military, and I go, "This this isn't a good a good start." So nobody got on or off the plane, and and then we just head to Nigeria, and eventually get to Cameroon. So you can imagine that that kind of twenty four thirty six hours by the time I landed, Cameroon was pretty um, pretty troubling, uh, very shaken. But I landed in Cameroon, but I'm not in the right city in Cameroon, so I need to get to the capital city. So I have one more little flight to take, and. Um, sitting in the airport, um, there again, the part of Cameroon I was in again was part of the French part of Cameroon and they're saying different things. Um, I'm not responding to anything they're saying and, a an African man, uh, comes up to me and, uh, says something in French and I kind of blurted out my kind of 
poor French response. I don't speak French. And he could tell pretty quick I could speak English. And so he starts talking to me in English. And, uh, and he said, hey, you just, just so you know, the, the plane's been delayed. Um, the plane's oversold. And I just want to let you know that. And so I said, great. And that was about the extent of the conversation. I ended up getting on that plane, uh, flying to uh, the capital, which is Yaoundi, Cameroon. Uh, arriving at about 9 at night, 8.30, 9 at night, um, which I never like to get into any city late at night just to find accommodations. And we truly landed in the uh, kind of an airport in the middle of a jungle. Um, uh, small plane, luggage was thrown off basically on the, ta- on the, on the uh, tarmac there. And, and everybody just departed, you know, and there's no, uh, again, this is 1980. Um, no Holiday Inn sign, no Sheridan, no Hyatt, no cab station, none of that, right? This is where I'm out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, the same African gentleman comes up to me and goes, hey, are you looking for a place to stay? And um, I don't know if he was a, the guardian angel of my life or, or what, but I just made a quick uh, judgment that, hey, I'm going to follow this guy. And uh, we literally just picked up our bags and walked off the tarmac into the jungle and and you know you're on trails and it's kind of a moonlit night and every once in a while somebody would come by you and kind of kind of frighten you but he seemed to know where he was going and you know about 15 minutes later um which when you're walking through a jungle in the middle of night in the middle of cameroon that 15 minutes a long 15 minutes right and there's a clearing and there's a house lit up and it's lifted up on stilts um which is kind of the typical of homes in that area just because of the rain and maybe insects and snakes and stuff like that and uh, we walk up he knocks on the door and the uh, door opens and there's an American woman sitting there and um, she and I found out uh, very quickly that she and her husband and her two children um, but she and her husband were uh, is it pronounced Wycliffe 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 missionaries in Cameroon and um, Cameroon has countless numbers of dialects and languages that are unwritten and their mission is to is to put that into uh, the, the Bible into their dialect and spread the word if you will and so literally uh, she said hey great come on in and that's the last I ever saw of my guardian angel um, and literally mark within minutes I'm sitting in a Bible study they had a, I'd interrupted their Bible study and I'm being handed a Bible again this is every bunch of African people being led by this couple from New England. Uh, didn't get to meet their kids till the next day. They were already asleep. Um, and here I'm reading a Bible passage. <laughs> the first time I'd done that in years and years and years. And so um, a day or two later, I'm, I'm sitting uh, in the – and they're very pleasant people. And um, a day or two later, I'm sitting and the, uh, the woman – uh, says, hey, John, are you, are you a Christian? And um, I love my response today. I loved, it was because it was so honest. I said, well, I'm better than a lot of people who go to church. And uh, she said, well, I didn't ask if you were better. I asked if you were a Christian. And I just kind of gave this blank stare. And she says, is, is Jesus your Lord and Savior? And uh I know my answer wasn't yes, uh, because I didn't know what I didn't know what in the world she was talking about. 
And so that began a, a couple more days with her, and she handed me my first, um, she handed me a, what's called the Good News Bible, and a very simple, easy to read, and has a few little sketches in it, Bible, and and sent me on uh, her my way, because I had, uh, there were a series of other pastors and missionaries throughout Cameroon, and I wanted to spend some time there, and she sent me to one, and that person sent me to another, and um, and that was a start. But the you know the real uh, maybe the real epiphany probably came Mark two or three days later, where I'm I had met this missionary, and he allowed me to stay in this very simple kind of concrete structure, tin roof, which is very typical of third world areas, and. And, uh, you know, a little single light bulb, and I'm sitting there on a little cot, and I just start – she hadn't given me a, a a lesson book or whatever how to read the Bible. So I just kind of closed my eyes and flipped the pages and picked a spot. And wouldn't you know it, the Holy Spirit picked um, the prodigal son and so um, in Luke there. And so I uh, started reading through that and uh, – I just uh, kind of really like fell to my knees and just started not just crying, you know, it's like uh, it's that shuddering, you know, you're just physically shaking, crying. And uh, what I was what I was doing, I guess, is again the fancy word I think I learned in seminary is contextualizing it. So um, I quickly. Um, place my older brother is the wild brother uh, my dad was the father figure and I was the obedient son mm-hmm. and uh, that was probably the moment so yeah and John when you had that kind of moment of recognition where you saw your own story reflected in this this biblical uh, narrative what was the where do you feel that sense of release of tension came from um was there something you uh, kind of felt you were able to not just recognize but also let go of um through that experience yeah these are these are these are great questions mark um well certainly since then um I'll probably answer it in a couple of different ways, but since then, I've certainly, um, as anybody who's been around the church for a while, you hear sermons on the prodigal son, and and so, uh, and I've certainly done a lot of reading on it. So I know a lot more today than I I did at maybe say at that moment in some respects. But there's something, um, you know, I know about the cult, Jewish culture, and you know. The idea of the father running and the, you know all that kind of stuff I've learned about all the backstory to um, Luke's prodigal son, but um, there's also something really pure I think, and this is one thing I express in, uh, when I have an opportunity to engage with youth ministry um, is you don't need to know you don't need to know all that stuff. I mean, the Holy Spirit can speak to you uh, in that moment. Right? You don't. Need, it's. It's. I think it. In so many respects, having that the the further context makes the story certainly so much deeper. Mm-hmm. But doesn't mean the Bible can't speak to you um, without that. Um, but going to to the the point of your question, um, 
Yeah, I think it, I think it did. It did help me um, tremendously. I don't know if it was a relief, if you will, but uh, um, I just knew how much my, uh, my worldly father loved my brother and me and my other brother, too. <laughs> um, but I also knew now that there was this other father that uh, um, far greater and uh, that uh, loved us, too. And so that was, I don't know, there was something freeing about that, I guess, in mm-hmm. some way. Yeah. Mm. So I'm, I'm wondering about what it was like to come back after that experience. You're off having this travel adventure, but you have this inner transformative experience. Um, you know, what's it like bringing that back when you returned? No, that was, again, that was the... That was the moment, and uh, and when I say that was the moment, I don't mean to be dismissive of all the Sunday school teachers and pastors and other people I may have interfaced with leading up to that point. I think they all play a role. Um, that just happened to be the thing that maybe pushed me over the top, so to speak, or helped drive me to deeper faith. And so when I came back, uh, you know, I uh, I was fortunate. Uh, uh, to reconnect with some friends who were attending church, and uh, it was a pastor named Don Williams who was preaching here locally in San Diego, who um, was very pivotal. Um, not you know the church community was certainly pivotal, but again engaging with that and understanding what that meant, but also just that that pastor at that particular time for me was. Um, was very pivotal, and just a side, a quick side story, Mark. I remember at some point after I'd been going there for some time, he and we'd gotten to know each other pretty well. I said, "Well, John, when are you, when are you um, ready to be baptized?" And um, and I said, "Oh, Don, I don't." And again, I'd been maybe watch watch too much late night, uh, you know, one in the morning, you know, Christian. TV or something, or these, you know, I'd seen a lot of, you know, Harley, you know, Harley Davidson type Hell's Angels guys commit their, commit to Christ. And, and I said, no, no, Don, I don't, I, I don't want to be baptized until my life is perfect. <laughs> and I just remember he smiled, he didn't say anything, which I appreciated. And he just said, uh, and I went on to say, no, Don, I want to have, you know, the, the, I'm single at the time. So I want to have the perfect girlfriend. I want to have the perfect job and the perfect, uh, you know, I think a perfect car and, and all that type of stuff. All that, all that stuff, right? So obviously I still hadn't truly gotten it all yet. Um, and it was funny about six months later, again, I had another epiphany. Hey, this isn't what it's about. It's not about stuff and being perfect. Um, you know, God will accept me as I am at that moment. Uh, and so uh, I was baptized, again, you know, as a baptized in the, on a cold December uh, morning in the La Jolla Cove. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. And then from then on, it just, you know, I tell people very uh, intentionally who know me well, I'm a very faith-based person. Mm-hmm. I think um, my faith is extremely strong. And, and you know, one of the reasons I, I believe I'm going to seminary, Mark, is to, I don't want to say round out. I, I just think if I feel a need to know um, 
you know, I, I look at seminary as being like a really intensive Bible study. Right. So that's where I hope it heads. So you're in Africa. You have this transformative experience that, that is a pivotal moment that reorients you in some ways. And then you come back, and there's still maturation process, things to work through uh, along the way, along this new orientation point. Um, but I, I'm wondering about your life now, many years later, different life situation, um, you know, much growth has happened, no doubt, in the meantime. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, for you today, how you define uh, spiritual maturity well, again, I've you know um, been blessed by again. I think this church community and and what it's afforded me in, in many respects. But you know, you know the the and I may have shared this with you before at some point in time in some conversations. But um, the men's ministry motto here is is more men, more like Christ. And um, what that means to me, and I think this is really important is, you know, I, when I say I, I try to be better um, and how that looks, it's, you know, better to me is defined by being more Christ-like and, and being comfortable that you'll never, I mean, very comfortable, it sounds kind of ludicrous to say this, hey, you'll, you'll never be Christ, that's sure. not the intent, the intent is just to try to improve yourself, and again, I, I say the word improve or better with the context of Christ being the perfection, and so on a on a you know a daily basis, um, just trying to be um, live up to that, and that's that's a struggle. It's a struggle for me. Uh, hopefully, it's not a struggle for anybody. Um, and I think that's that's the motivation um a quote that that i learned a couple years ago i think sums it up really well and it's a it's a a quote from saint francis of assisi and it's it's something goes something like this it basically says um your deeds may be the only sermon that some people will hear today and i and i try to i attempt (laughs) to live my life like that and so um I'm aware that as we go through life, it could be in a grocery store, it could be on an elevator, it could be at work, it could be within the context of my family, that um, that I'm a Christian. And I look at that, I try to look at that as a joy and a uh, ob- obligation, but a, really it's a joyful obligation and not a, again, another thing I try to, when I'm working with youth, if, if, if being a Christian is a burden to you, Let's sit and chat about that because it should be a, it should be expressed in so much joy. You know, when when Jesus calls you to be the light of the world, um, you should do that with um, all in your heart and soul and mind. And that's what I try to live up to. And it's a, um, but I understand I fail every day. I don't, you have to understand you're going to fail every day, every hour, every minute. But God, there are things that you do that. And again, I may have shared this with you previously as well, but um, you can do things in the context of a day that I think um, are really Christ-like. Huh. Um, not that Christ couldn't do so much better. So if I engage you on a street and I see that you're in need of some help or 
help pull over and help somebody fix a flat tire. Well, obviously, you know, Jesus has the capability of healing, doing all kinds of other stuff, but he didn't do that through the Bible continuously. And so, you can do things that are Christ-like. So. Now, I'm interested in your um, you know, practices, things that you do on an ongoing basis to cultivate that, that degree of awareness that you can then live out of and, and pursue that. It sounds like kind of a central task in your life to um, be more like Christ. Uh, it's something you pursue with a men's ministry, with the youth. Um, you know, it, it's kind of a core part of who you are. Yeah. Well, awareness is certainly a key word. Um, I think that uh, that self-reflection, that awareness um, on a very intentional, ongoing basis is really important. Um, and I try to, you know, I happen to do it in the evenings. Um, I can't, sometimes I do it throughout the day, but I certainly do it in the evenings where I um, I reflect on on that day and go... And it's pretty easy, I mean, to to quickly identify areas that you've certainly fallen short. <laughs> and by example, I'll just give you one that happened last week. I was out to a business lunch with my partners, and there came an opportunity. We were talking about something, and, and I made a, a joke about a former employee that worked for our firm that got, a, at the, in the moment, gave, got a lot of chuckles amongst the group. But was very, you know, it was one of these things later that evening. I'm going, John, what in the world? You're better, you're better than this. And again, better in the context of trying to be Christ-like. You know, why, why tell a joke about a, somebody that's demeaning? Um, and, I, you know, we all encounter, do that stuff. You know, you, you forward on an email. I mean, you, I could go down a litany of stuff that we all do. Uh, I say something improper to my wife or friends and stuff like that. But I, but again, it's something. I think I'm marked as blessed with being pretty in tune, if you will. Um, some people may have to work a little harder at that. Um, hey, there's nothing wrong with the next day after you've said something to somebody apologizing, or or, or so, yeah, maybe it's a year or two old. There's nothing wrong with that. So. Um, Forgiveness is a big thing, too. So, But it's got to be – I mean, I, again, to your point, I think it's, it's being intentional and being observant and being really honest with yourself, looking yourself in the mirror and going – being aware, being self-reflective about that. So we've mentioned along the way kind of your involvement in, in a variety of different arenas of spirituality, one of them being men's spirituality. I'm wondering if you can, can touch on that a little bit. Was there a, a, a seed or a germ um, that kind of got that started for you that brought home the need uh, for an emphasis or some kind of forum to expand men's spirituality in particular? Uh, well, like, again, it's, um, I think I've, I think I've uh, I maybe had it um, embedded for a while, but maybe it was too fearful or whatever to to move forward with it, but uh, um, our pastor here had asked me early upon his arrival at this church to um, head up a men's retreat. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, and also, I had, he had asked me into a men's small group. And uh, first time I'd ever done that um, for any extended period of time, certainly with peers, people, men of my own kind of age and um, kind of where they were in life bracket, if you will. We all had, we're all married. We had kids, things like that. So there were some common denominators. And um, that kind of triggered it in, in many respects. I can kind of I can point to that. And uh, so I got involved in that first uh, men's retreat, and myself and three or four other people from our other men from our church were the speakers. And that's probably one of the first times I've kind of talked publicly about my faith. You know, I'd like to think I'm a pretty sincere person, and I think that gets um, conveyed when I talk. Um, and I could see how it affected guys. Um, you know, men kind of one-off, more one-offs, which is kind of typical, would, you know, came up to me and said something, hey, your story resonated with me, or, you know, I had a similar experience, or, John, what do you think about this? And... And, um, you know, I think that uh, sparked something in me. And I think men are really interesting. I think uh, um, there's a lot of, lot of, you know, it's like peeling the onion skin back, you know. I think you may, I, I'm going to maybe very stereotypical. Like men, women talk much more, more freely, um, I think. <laughs> Uh, I'm not positive of all that. I know they talk more in my, my household than I do, <laughs> but um, but with guys, you know, sometimes it takes a while, and so um, I just I found it very uh, very uh, enriching, I guess, and um, and it's just been a great experience. Just uh, and again, I I think personally, um, I kind of like talking one-on-one or in this kind of smaller group context. Um, I have some, I may have shared this with you, some dreams about doing some bigger things in men's ministry, and and some of that's currently uh, stuck in the, the, you know, hey, the doubt and the fear stage, which I'd like to maybe chat with you more about and some other people more about. But um, it's been real impactful, and again, I, it... Uh, I've enjoyed it, and uh, I think guys I've engaging with. Again, part of it's just, you know, I'm very open to talking about kind of any issue um, that may be facing a guy from, you know, uh, husband, fatherhood stuff to, you know, the whole, you know, any issue, pornography, infidelity, gambling. I mean, those are kind of whatever. I think me being pretty open about my transgressions and... Please don't, please, your listeners don't read too much into what I just said, but, but, uh, I'm, hey, you know, we all fail. So, um, you know, there you go. So you've got, um, a a capacity, it sounds like, to open up and be vulnerable and, and maybe facilitate a process with certain men's groups where you're able to go maybe a few layers deeper or beyond what they might be otherwise comfortable with um yeah um so i'm also wondering about uh, along the way 
pivotal books or experiences or maybe even sermons, you know, something that, that spoke to you and, and provided a kind of occasion of pivoting, of transformation or expansion? Um, are there certain touchstones for you? You mentioned that Albert Schweitzer book earlier, but um, what about, you know, books or, or, or content that focuses on a kind of expanding um, spirituality? You know, even from your sem- seminary classes. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's. Um, you're right, and when you're attending seminary, you get. In fact, that's kind of the you know I'm the outlier there at seminary. I'm late fifties, going. I'll be turning my sixties here in, in the next year, and most of my classmates are kind of twenty four to maybe thirty two. Um, a few other outliers there. We it's kind of fun. We connect in the hallway and. And uh, laugh about uh, our experiences, but uh, um, you know, one thing again. With, again, I'm, I'm kind of learning to go back to school again, and learning to walk in a library, and understanding what that means. And in 2015, as opposed to you know 1975, <laughs> and um, again, certainly lots of books. And I've actually expressed this to my professors that I get kind of get lost in the books. You know, so I start. I start reading, and I go, gosh, I never thought about that. And then I go get another book, and I never kind of finish the original stuff. So I struggle with that. But I I think – so I can't – you know, Mark, I know that you're very well read, and I can't really point to a a book or books that – but but in terms of the the experience part, um, really been shaped by – in addition to the kind of the men's ministry part – I've been able to um, have some real fabulous friendships with youth directors that have come through um, our church and their friends. So mostly guys, um, certainly some women, some young gals as well. But, you know, in that kind of 20, kind of post-college, 23 to kind of 28-year-olds um, who have lots of questions and for some reason they've sought me out or maybe, again, they, they see me around the youth programs. I've, I've had kids in, in that program, and so they've gotten to know me. And, and um, that's been really exciting for me. And um, just those conversations over a beer and some pizza with uh, one or two or three 20-somethings and, and where they're headed in life and just questions they have about relationships and work and how does this work? And gee, John, why does your family do stuff this way or, or that way? And um, and then additionally, um, just being really candid, just um, you know, being a husband and a a father, um, mm-hmm. such a joy and such a a, a responsibility that uh, um, I've certainly enjoyed. And and um, again, I fall back to having had some great parents but i don't i don't think that certainly certainly has helped um but my parents came from very troubled backgrounds and became great parents so i don't think that's a precursor by any means but um you know in a i wrote a a credo of faith here um as part of the process of uh, my engagement with our church and you know in that in that credo and it's just in a direct quote but i you know i said you know the, the more that we in a context of our home the more that my wife and I, um, you know, honor God and make Him very present, 
um, not only in, I'll call it stuff, meaning uh, uh, pictures or a cross or things of that sort, but just in our, the way that, you know, the prayer around um, the family dinner table, um, praying together with my wife, praying with my children, um, you know, with a couple kids away at school, or my son locally, you know, um, people scoff at technology a lot, thinking it's the downfall of our faith, but I think it can really boost our faith. And, you know, those those one-off texts to my kids about either sending them a verse or, or uh, telling them I'm praying for them, um, that stuff's just really, uh, that's probably more impactful to me than... Mm-hmm. Not just counting books, because I need to get back on the books, but um, that stuff is just really impactful to me, and really, um, I hope I think you know my kids have been very uh, gracious in comments they've made to me about as they've gotten away to college and they they meet with other kids and 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 uh, been very complimentary, which is always nice to hear as a parent that hey, dad, you and mom are right or. You know, you and mom, it's kind of cool how we did this and that kind of stuff. So, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's a good shot. So, Right. Uh, I, it sounds like your particular journey and your, you know, your spiritual arc has, has impacted your desire to, you know, relate to certain ways of parent uh, through that the youth ministry, men's ministry. Um, I'm wondering if there's a kind of way to crystallize how you would like to see the world impacted through what it is that you do. Yeah, well, there's a great, um, it's a great quote. Um, I, I shared the, the St. Francis Assisi quote. The other, the other quote that's really meaningful to me is, and I'll just give you a piece of it, if you will. It's, it was um, stated by... Um, an Archbishop Romero who ended up being martyred. And I'll just read part of it. Um, and it says this, This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that will one day grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We may never see the end results, but as a difference between the master builder and the worker, we are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. And I think, I think what that says to me, Mark, is that um, I think there's this human element that wants to get gratified by. You know, it's always certainly nice to see a young person that you've helped mature and and um, maybe come back to you and go, hey, Mr. Brand, you did this and you helped me out. But but I think there's so many opportunities we have, and this goes back to kind of my this, this Christian genealogy thing that I'm intrigued by, that I think we interface with people all the time, some we know, many we don't, and we have this, um, and they're just seeds. I mean, you're just tossing seeds out, you know, buying coffee for somebody, smiling, having a quick conversation in an elevator, um, just doing those kind of things so you're hopefully just your daily life. And, and, and they're intentional, but hopefully they're not um, 
Hopefully you're not keeping a scorecard because I don't think that's the way to do it. Hopefully it just is embodied in how you live your life daily. And uh, the men's ministry stuff I'm doing, Mark, I'd love to to see. Uh, I, I think I have a message to give. And and whether that stays on a one-on-one basis, that if that's what the Lord, how the Lord wants to use me, that's great. If he sees me being part of a larger picture, that's great too. Um, but it's just um, it's just throwing out seeds and and um, continuing to do um, good work in His name, and we'll see where that goes. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us today, uh, for, for you know sharing your insights, your passion, your story, your desire to see others grow. You know, with, which is testament to your experience of having moved through you know, our common egocentric stage into really this other centered way of being where you are actively looking for ways to help. And I appreciate so much uh, the person that you are, the work you do. And uh, thank you so much for being here, John. No, that's great, Mark. Thank you so much. And uh, you've been listening to the Spiritual Directions podcast with Mark Thomas Shaw. Check us out at markthomasshaw.com. The show notes for this episode will be up at markthomasshaw.com slash zero seven. And we'll have a question up. What is it that has allowed you to identify and live out of your passion? And you can share that in the comments section on the show notes page. Sign up for the newsletter and get a fantastic, stunning new ebook. Ten modern classics that should be on every spiritual seeker's bookshelf. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. More importantly, I hope you got something out of it. Thanks. Have a great week. Take care.